Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we get into an interesting discussion with uh, Joshua Zeitz, author most recently of Building the Great Society Inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. Many uh, parallels to uh, today, lessons for today. I want to uh, read this email we uh, got following the program, or at least we received it following the program a couple of days ago. You'll recall we were talking uh, with a panel uh, several Utah-based organizations had put together a town hall conversation focusing on the impact and future of the Me Too movement. Had a very interesting discussion, and uh, here's an email from uh, Southern Utah. The gentleman says, I appreciate the discussion and the Me Too movement. I'm glad that this movement is working to make the workplace safer. My question is, do you think some people are being falsely accused of sexual harassment because they do not like someone? It may be a minority, but I was falsely accused, and there was no due process that happened at my workplace. I'm a white male, and my career has been ruined because a coworker did not like me and took advantage of the current climate to have me fired. I am saddened and disappointed by this action, and I suspect it's happening to other people. If I took legal action, I'm sure it would damage my reputation even more, given the current climate. I have heard some characterize this as collateral damage for the larger good of the Me Too movement. How is the panel working to make sure that uh, some are not falsely accused? It will not help me, but I hope it will help others. I'm not even comfortable sharing my real name, but I will share that I live in St. George, and I am a real person. This happened to me in November of 2017. Shame on this woman who falsely accused me and mocks real sexual harassment that happens. Thank you to UPR for hosting this topic. It's from a writer in southern Utah. Thanks for that. Uh, keep those emails coming to upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Lyndon Johnson's towering political skills and his ambitious slate of liberal legislation are stuff of legend. His five years in office saw the arrival of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the launch of Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, and the earliest push for environmental reform, among other social and political landmarks. But passing legislation is not the same as enacting actual change. One man could not and did not go it alone. Joshua Zeitz, New York Times bestselling author previously of Lincoln's Boys, in his new book, Building the Great Society Inside Lyndon Johnson's White House, uh, tells the story of how one of the most competent White House staffs in American history, serving one of the most complicated presidents ever to occupy the Oval Office, fundamentally changed everyday life for millions of citizens. We're going to talk with Joshua Zeitz on the program today. We'll bring lessons from LGB, uh, LBJ's White House forward to the current White House. We'll talk about uh, how issues of race then are uh, still percolating today. And uh, we'll look at the future of Great Society programs. We'll also talk about uh, some of Joshua Zeitz's uh, recent columns in Politico magazine, including conversations about populism and immigration. Just a note that uh, the phone line uh, with Joshua Zeitz when I reached him on Monday uh, dropped out, has some uh, a few dropouts, not bad, but just to be aware that those uh, happen from time to time this conversation. And we reached uh, Joshua Zeitz on vacation in Paris. Here's my conversation. So just want to talk uh, about your goals with this book, Building the Great Society Inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. There were a number of books, of course, about uh, LBJ, fascinating character. What did you hope to accomplish with this book? I didn't attempt to set out and, and write a biography of LBJ. There are um, other historians and biographers who have done that uh, extremely well. I think we're all awaiting Robert Caro's final volume in his kind of masterpiece series on Johnson. What I, what I wanted to do was write a book about two things. One, uh, a book about the, the inside workings of his White House. A lot of biographies of Johnson essentially place him at the very center of the story, and the people around him are often ancillary characters, and yet he built what was arguably one of the most highly functioning, um, successful White House staffs and administrations in recent American history. And in the same way that um, historians have done some wonderful work on FDR's cast of characters, the New Dealers who populated his administration, I wanted to do the same thing for Johnson. And the second thing I wanted to do was restore some focus to the enactment of the Great Society program. So much of the history about the, this era focuses on how Johnson, as a kind of master legislator, pushed so many programs through Congress in so short a period of time. And I think that's an important story. 
But then the question is, what happens next? So, so many of these books and a lot of the sort of theatrical and, and film portrayals of Johnson um, sort of stop when he signs landmark legislation like the Voting Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act. Um, and I wanted to look at how his staff built these programs and made them enduring and made them a permanent fixture in American society in so short a period of time, even at the same time as they were drawing down their um, their well of political capital on civil rights and as they were getting mired in Vietnam. We'll start with the second of those points. Um, and you make the analogy, the example, in recent times, Portable Care Act. One thing to pass that, another thing entirely to mm-hmm. to make it enduring, to, to enact it. That's exactly right. I mean, when you consider the, the pain and difficulty the Obama administration encountered in in standing up the Affordable Care Act, and then you look at, at the Johnson administration and its ability to construct Medicare and get it fully operational within 11 months of Johnson's having signed the bill, signed the program into law, that's a remarkable thing. They had to not only uh, find and, and get consent from 19 million senior citizens who, who had to opt in voluntarily to the voluntary um, uh, medical insurance component to Medicare Part B, they also had to work with you know, thousands of hospitals to get them fully into compliance with both civil rights and other financial compliance um, components uh, that would allow them to participate in Medicare and receive Medicare dollars. They had to work with insurance carriers who were going to administer the program. They had to work with nursing homes. They, they did all of this in 11 months, which is an extraordinary thing. Now, as I point out in the book, they also didn't face the kind of stubborn resistance um, that Obama faced in, in standing up the ACA, as, as some of the, the framers and, and builders of, of Medicare would later observe. You know, once the bill had been signed into law, the American Medical Association, which had been steadfastly opposed to it, certainly didn't take the administration to court and try to prevent it from actually, you know, building the program once it had been passed. And by the same token, Southern governors, who very much resented the integration of their hospitals and nursing homes, didn't just simply tell their hospitals and nursing homes to opt out of Medicare. George Wallace did, but he was the only only governor who attempted to do that. So it was a very different political climate, but it's still a remarkable achievement. And and this heavy lift is big, right? The, the Great Society, this is very, very ambitious. That's right. I mean, when you think about the component pieces of the Great Society, if you just rattle some of them off, it's, it's, it's an astounding list. It's Medicare and Medicaid. It's, uh, you know, public uh, federal aid to public education, primary and secondary education, federal aid to university students in the form of both direct college subsidies and college library subsidies and student loans. It's public television and public radio, Head Start, um, the program once known as Food Stamps, now known as SNAP. It's subsidized school lunches for um, impoverished children. Um, it's, It's a sweeping array of legislation, and it was all passed mostly in the space of two years, and it was all stood up in terms of the programs themselves within the space of five years. So it, it's quite a remarkable legacy that, that Johnson left behind. And certainly, I think one would be hard-pressed to identify a president after Roosevelt or after Johnson who had, who had done, you know, left such a, such a sort of comprehensive um, set of social programs in place. One point that you make is that uh, sometimes we see civil rights as a component of the Great Society, like you make the point that civil rights pervades everything they tried to do. That's exactly right. I mean, on one hand, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act have to be viewed as components of, of the great society, but um, these were not ancillary items. Uh, Johnson understood that he had so much political capital to spend down, and he consciously made the decision uh, to spend it on civil rights. So, for instance, the uh, the bill that... Um, for the first time ever, infused uh, federal dollars into into uh, local school districts, primary the aid to primary and secondary education act, also um, gave the federal government, particularly the Johnson administration, a carrot with which to try to desegregate southern schools. Now, the Civil Rights Act did two things. It it what it did was it said that you know the Department of Justice could sue non-compliant districts um, and could go straight to federal court. That was the stick. But it also provided the measure by which the federal government could withhold the money from districts that weren't in compliance. And the Johnson administration, within weeks of uh, passing the 1965 uh, uh, Aid to Public Education bill, um, began setting about the business of working with thousands of local school districts, primarily in the South, but then eventually in the North as well, and getting them into compliance. They set hard 
they set hard quotas and targets in terms of uh, classroom integration and integration of teaching forces. Um, and they were quite serious about it. Johnson himself used to wander in and out of the basement office that uh, his, um, his domestic policies are, Joe Califano, um, commanded. And he'd walk in and out during meetings uh, where they'd have maps up on the, you know, and lists up on the wall with all of the non-compliant districts. And he knew them district by district, school by school. He knew the targets. And he would yell, get them, get them, get every last one of them. He was deeply committed to this. And they used federal aid to public education in part as a way to, to really kind of wrench the South free of its longstanding practice of segregating schools. You make the point that uh, Johnson very consciously uh, he felt he had political capital. He was going to use that. He was going to spend it down. Uh, in fact, he pushed back. I guess yeah. some aides say, well, you know, you, you don't want to spend all your political capital. And <laughs> he said, in effect, well, what's the presidency for? Yeah, he said, well, what the hell is the presidency for? He once told Bill Moyers that, look, you know, after the 1964 uh, landslide victory against uh, Barry Goldwater, he said, you know, I've won by this many million votes. And every month I'm going to lose X million votes, right? He, he had the numbers in his head. And he said basically, you know, and we will spend this down until we have no more to spend and then presumably run again in 1968, win and, and refill the coffers. But, you know, he took steps that other presidents probably would have avoided for political expediency. It wasn't just that they were forcing southern schools, which had practiced, you know, de jure, um, segregation to integrate their facilities. They also took the fight to the north, where in cities like Chicago, so-called de facto um, school segregation had, had kept schools at least as segregated as they were in Alabama and Mississippi. And Johnson understood that you know, those schools were not really accidentally segregated. A whole host of um, you know, private and public sector practices that, that kept neighborhoods segregated resulted in you know, segregated schools. They also drew down a lot of capital in, in using the Medicare dollars to force the desegregation of hospitals and nursing homes in the South. And they were quite explicit about what that meant to, to qualify for federal funds through Medicare and through Medicaid. A hospital had to show that it was desegregating, desegregating its facilities floor by floor, room by room, ward by ward, had to employ African-American health practitioners. And they even, they even instituted guidance on, on ways and medical staff were to be treated, you know, and they mandated, for instance, that to be in compliance, you had to refer to African-American doctors as doctor. You had to refer to patients as Mr. and Ms. and Mrs. So it wasn't just desegregation. It was affecting a wide-sweeping change in the way in which medical care was provided to people of color. And on a large, in a larger sense, it, it was, you know, kind of reorienting the way the South treated um, its, its minority residents. What do you think has changed to have subsequent presidents not have as had as much capital or been more reluctant to 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 spend that? I I recall um, President Bush, George W. Bush. I think this was after his reelection in two thousand four. He made a speech explaining, "I've got capital now. I'm going to spend it. I'm going to spend it on um, you know reshaping Social Security." Then there was a big backlash, and he backed off pretty quick. What what has changed? Do you think? Yeah, that's or, right. Do you think? Well, I don't think any president uh, in the last 50 years has enjoyed the kind of capital and the position that LBJ did. I mean, the, the irony is that, well, whereas my book sort of argues that he built a really competent White House that understood how to govern, he's gotten most credit for being a master legislator. And while to some extent he was, I think that narrative is overplayed. You know, he enjoyed two big benefits that no president since has enjoyed. One was that after John Kennedy's assassination, John, you know, Johnson was the um, the beneficiary of a great deal of public goodwill. The, the, you know, the American people wanted to get behind their new president. They wanted him to succeed. And he understood, uh, in large part, that you know, he was riding, uh, in some respects, on, uh, you know, on the coattails of his, of his late predecessor, who had had almost no success whatsoever in pushing many of the same programs through Congress. So he initially enjoyed that. And the second um, benefit he accrued was a landslide victory over Barry Goldwater, which delivered, you know, sweeping, um, almost, you know, um, kind of super majorities, liberal super majorities in both houses of Congress. And so, you know, that was a status quo that only lasted for two years. And most of the great society, great society legislation, you know, sailed through in, in that period of time. You know, I, I think columnists like Maureen Dowd used to really criticize President Obama for lacking the kind of legislative prowess that LBJ exhibited. But, uh, you know, the criticism of, of, of that interpretation is that, you know, 
President Obama only enjoyed a Democratic majority in Congress for two years, and arguably he did use his political capital. He spent it down on the Affordable Care Act and the American Recovery Act and, uh, and on bank reform, a bunch of other measures which were really important, pay equity. Uh, and, then, and then he inherited a Republican Congress in at least one chamber um, for the rest of his presidency. So to, to imagine that he somehow could have you know, exhibited some LBJ-style mastery if only he had played golf with people and, and rung them up more and had drinks with them, I think is to misunderstand why Johnson was able to get these programs through Congress. Now, the question I ask in the book is then, having gotten these bills through Congress, then what? How did they build the programs, and what were the sort of guiding ideas behind them? Yeah, that's where I'd like to go next. Um, good segue. Um, you've described Johnson's White House as the most effective uh, since uh, FDR, and probably and perhaps you know since uh, as well. Um, why? Why so effective? Um, in part because they took governing seriously. I mean, Johnson assembled a group of men, and they were mostly men. It was the early and mid 1960s. Um, these were men, though, who who took public policy seriously. Jack Valenti, who was one of his aides and was uh, the appointment secretary, which sounds a little bit um, like a kind of light title, but wasn't. He was the gatekeeper to the president, both the ability to be able to see the president and in terms of what the president actually read and absorbed. You know, Valenti estimated that Johnson read 300,000 words each week in policy memoranda that his staff prepared, which meant Valenti was probably reading twice as much because he was curating it for the president. This was a White House staff with people who simply uh, believed in, in the efficacy of governments in the public sector. They took the federal bureaucracy seriously. Um, and these are men who took the art of governing seriously. They took policy seriously. They were deep and widely read students of both political uh, economy and sociology. And they applied that knowledge uh, and they applied that kind of seriousness of purpose to the task at hand. It's It's sort of tempting to compare that to the current administration, where you see a sort of dearth of real, um, I, I guess, White House talent. And, and it shows that I think the Trump administration is having problem dismantling some of LBJ's legacy, because they simply haven't gone about staffing their White House with people of the same intellectual character and caliber. And, th- and that was important. Johnson had grown up as a New Deal Democrat in the 1930s. He actually trusted the federal bureaucracy because he understood that many of those kind of small, no-name agencies um, had importance that their no-names belied. You know, he saw all of these young men and women flock to Washington in the 1930s and build great programs um, and and do great things. And he understood that many of these people had remained in government and they had deep expertise in in topics as far and wide as conservation uh, or uh, Social Security and old age pensions or medical care and health care economy. And he really tapped them um, and he brought them into the White House he brought and he gave their expertise. I think that that's tremendously important. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And if you just joined us, uh, my guest is Joshua Zeitz. He's New York Times bestselling author previously of Lincoln's Boys. The latest book is Building the Great Society Inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. The, the word disruption is used with President Trump. Supporters of President Trump will say that, uh, you know, that the government, federal government is stuck, needed a disruptor. President Trump is that disruptor. Um, it's a fashionable uh, term nowadays in business. Um, but I think I hear you saying that if President Trump's goal is to dismantle the Great Society, if Republicans in Congress want to do that, they're probably going to have to use the, you know, they're going to have to operate at a, at a higher expertise level, the way LBJ did. Yeah, I mean, when you think about Johnson, he, he worked a, uh, a two-day shift. So Johnson usually woke up at around 6 a.m., and one of his aides, usually Jack Valenti in the early days, uh, Marvin Watson later on, uh, would meet him in his bedroom and retrieve from him the, er, the previous evening's so-called night reading. That was the you know, thousands of pages of memoranda that Johnson would, would read over, pour over late at night, early in the morning. And he'd leave uh, instructions in the, in the margins, you know, OK, LBJ, or see me, or no, or yes, or you know, something more detailed. And, you know, Valenti would go through the, the, the sort of instructions and paperwork with LBJ and then dole them out later. Johnson would get down to the Oval Office around 8.30 or 9, put in about five, to- five hours of meetings. Um, he would then eat a light lunch and go for a swim and then take a nap for an hour, wake up, put on a fresh, you know, uh, change of clothes, and come downstairs and work again till about 8 o'clock in the Oval Office and then retire back upstairs for dinner, and then he would be in bed 
at about 9, 10 o'clock p.m. and begin the night reading, which could go on until 1, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. He had few outside interests. I think if you compare this to President Trump's so-called executive time, which seems to be in abundance, it's very clear that, you know, one of the, the key ingredients of becoming a successful president is actually immersing oneself in the details and taking the job seriously. And it's not just Johnson, you know, who, who took it seriously. His aides had to immerse themselves just as deeply. They had to become jacks of all trades. Um, there were fewer defined roles in that White House and in most White Houses uh, and West Wings in that day. So you, you sort of immersed yourself in domestic policy and foreign policy, and you had, to, you had to know enough to be more than dangerous in a number of areas. And these aides were at his beck and call 24-7. One of his, um, his closest advisors, Harry McPherson, would later say that um, one of the, the, the great you know, kind of reliefs of having left the White House in 1969 is that he was no longer um, you know, at the mercy of Lyndon Johnson's red telephone because you know, Johnson would install direct lines um, so that he could get them at all times of, of the evening. So if he saw something in a memo and wanted wanted to discuss it, he would simply pick up the phone, and and that that aide would be you know oh, you know awoken at three in the morning to discuss <laughs> the memo. So th- they worked hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about expertise. The the you know, Johnson surrounded himself with uh, some of them. You could be called intellectuals. Seem to trust expertise. Current White House perhaps has a skepticism. Of, uh, of of expertise. Yeah, this was a very different age. You have to put yourself in the, the sort of the time and context. It was the, the post-war era. You know, in the 1930s, intellectuals, and particularly liberal intellectuals, had really felt that capitalism um, had been permanently damaged and that we would be living in a, in a long-term cycle of downward uh, economic uh, busts, that we would be seeing slow, sluggish, Employment growth, the economy would no longer perform to full capacity. That, that, that basically capitalism was sick, and we had to we had to accustom ourselves for the long term to a scarcity society. It somehow had run its course, and and then World War II changed everything. You know, economic planners, uh, economists, uh, sociologists, uh, politicians, you know, uh, bureaucrats. They they built the warfare state during the 1940s. They you know, they armed and clothed and deployed an army of 16 million people, defeated fascism in Europe and Asia. They resuscitated the American economy. They figured out how to um, to revive the, the global economy, particularly in Europe. And and there was this faith that like that that scientists and economists and political scientists had figured out how to make the machine work. And particularly for when it came to economy. They had figured out how to sustain long-term economic growth at low inflation rates, and there, that the experts really knew what they were doing. And this this was a period in which you know college professors and people with PhDs and people with policy expertise had a great deal of intellectual currency. Their books were widely read and discussed, even in popular circles. And so there were people like John Kenneth Galbraith, the, the economist, whose work deeply influenced the Johnson administration's war on poverty. There were other sociologists and and kind of um, social welfare experts like Wilbur Cohen, who had been one of the designers of Social Security and who would go on to play a large role in the Johnson administration designing Medicare, who had a, an outsized voice in the administration. There was, there was a faith in, in expertise, and that's been diminished in recent years, and it's not just because of President Trump. I think historians look at the post-Watergate era as an era in which, in, in, in which you know, for a number of reasons, both the Vietnam War Watergate, um, the democratization of education, a lot of it has, has led people to, to question experts in a way that wasn't the case then. They, they really, they were able to, to, to play that role in a way they might not be today. I want to talk about some of these figures around the president. You focus on them in the, in the book. Before I get there, I want to uh, talk about one of the, the main themes of the book, and I'll get to it this way. This is a, a headline in uh, Political Magazine. Um, which you've adapted, uh, you know, some of your your book here. Mm-hmm. The title is "What Everyone Gets Wrong About LBJ's Great Society." Subtitle: It wasn't some radical left wing pipe dream. It was moderate and it worked. So you make the case that this wasn't. It, it's it's come to be seen, especially in conservative circles, as pretty radical. That's exactly right. I think most conservatives today sort of caricature the Great Society as a failed experiment in, in, in Western European or even Soviet-style you know, socialism and redistributive uh, policy. It, it wasn't. Um, it was born of a very real belief that was widely shared by liberals in, in the early and mid-60s that, again, the economy 
was humming, it was growing, that the experts and economists had figured out how to grow it in perpetuity with low inflation. And whereas in the 1930s, when, when most liberal intellectuals thought the economy was permanently stuck and sick, and, and they thought that in order to make sure everybody had enough to get by, you would have to redistribute wealth and income, by the 60s, there was this sense that most liberals who, who were influential in designing the Great Society believed, they shared, that um, that what you needed to do was give people the tools, the qualitative tools that they needed to access that growing economy. So as Walter Lippmann put it, he was Walter Lippmann was a... Uh, at that point, probably in his 70s or 80s, he was a you know the dean of American journalism and uh, one of the founders of the, the New Republic. He he said you know in, in the 30s we would have talked about how you divide the pie into smaller pieces. Today we talk about growing the pie, and so the Johnson administration consciously considered and rejected more radical ideas like wealth and income redistribution. They rejected the idea of a negative income tax to enforce. Uh, a minimum family wage or minimum family income. Uh, they rejected ideas uh, that would have passed muster in the New Deal era, like, you know, New Deal-style jobs programs to provide the unemployed with jobs. And instead, they focused on qualitative measures like job training, education, health care, so that people would be well enough to work. And then they tried to help with nutritional assistance for those who had been left behind or at the edges, and they tried to help to make sure that the safety net was extended for those who would by definition fall outside the workforce, like children and the elderly. But basically, it was a very centrist-type program that assumed that the economy would continue to grow you know, forever at low inflation rates, and that if you armed people with the tools they needed to avail themselves of that growth, they would be able to lift themselves up. It was, it was the you know, very embodiment of the term, you know, a hand up, not a hand out. And somehow that's been lost in the discussion over the years. And there's not only pushback, uh, there's always been pushback from the right, pushback from the, some of the left these days, right, who want to go to more of a wealth redistribution model. That's right. I mean, even during Johnson's uh, time, there were people within the administration who disagreed with this approach, people like Wilbur Cohen to some extent, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was an assistant secretary of labor. Um, they believed that what poor people needed was not, you know, uh, qualitative measures. Um, they believed they needed jobs and income, and that there were certain places and pockets in the comp of the, the country where those jobs had just disappeared. They also believed that, you know, you, you fundamentally had to ensure that that families had a basic income if you wanted to eradicate poverty. If you if you jump forward though, 30 or 40 years, a lot of the logic underpinning the Great Society has been called into question since the 1970s. Wages have stagnated um, for most families. Uh, you have more families in which children are growing up with a single parent, which is not a bad thing in and of itself, but it does oftentimes correlate to poverty in, an, in, in, a, in a context where it takes two wages to keep parity with 1973 incomes. You have rising uh, wealth inequality. And so the idea that the pie has continued to grow and that all you need to do is furnish people with the means to avail themselves of that growth, that may no longer hold up. I wonder, uh, what do you think is going to happen? You know, looking forward, it's uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but uh, it does seem that, um, you know, conservatives are trying to dismantle Obama's legacy, but you make the point they're trying to dismantle LBJ's legacy as well. Um, will they have success, do you think? Well, that's, that's certainly right. I mean, if you look at the slate of programs that Paul Ryan particularly is, is attempting to dismantle, he's trying to, you know, take Medicaid and turn it into a, a block grants limited program rather than entitlement. They're trying again um, to play around with Medicare and potentially, you know, and create a kind of private market alternative to it. They're certainly tr trying to take the knife to uh, nutritional assistance, both to uh, families in the form of SNAP, uh, but also, incredibly, they're also trying to make steep cuts to, to subsidized and free school lunch and breakfast programs that serve over 20 million poor children. They're trying to take, you know, the axe to public radio and public television. Um, it's it's certainly Johnson's uh, legacy that's very much uh, at stake. And you even look at the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, they're already attempting to, and with some success, to dismantle portions of the Voting Rights Act. The conservatives attempting certainly to to thwart the very meaning of the Voting Rights Act by placing obstacles, um, often obstacles in the way of people of color and poor people to vote. Uh, I would even argue that some of the, the efforts of conservatives today to create religious exemptions to state laws that provide, uh, you know, 
public accommodations protections to LGBT couples, um, there's a slippery slope from that to using religious exemptions to challenge some of the public accommodations uh, components of the Civil Rights Act of 64. So I think his legacy is very much at play. I think if, if you admire the Great Society, I certainly do, and there's a credible conservative case to be made against it, but if, if you value it, I think the one piece of solace you can take, again, is that Trump's White House is by no means clever enough or, or necessarily deft enough at the art of governance to, to even know how to begin dismantling those programs. But with time, they might be able to do it. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Joshua Zeitz. He's author previously of the New York Times bestseller, Lincoln's Boys. The new book is Building the Great Society Inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. Joshua Zeitz is a contributing editor at Politico Magazine. He's studied American history and politics at Cambridge, Harvard, and Princeton Universities, written for the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic, New York Times, and others. And... Uh, he is. He holds a Ph.D. in American history at Brown University. Have to be talking with uh, Joshua Zeitz uh, today. We'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access U. Tom Tom Williams. Before we uh, continue uh, to the last part of my conversation with Joshua Zeitz on building the Great Society, talking about Lyndon Baines Johnson, of course, and we've had this email from Steve. He says, streaming on HBO, both HBO Now and HBO Go, is the filmed version of the Broadway play All the Way, in which the incredible protean actor Brian Cranston channels LBJ. Over and above the eerie verisimilitude of Cranston's performance and the Hollywood prosthetics which make him a dead ringer for President Johnson, All the Way is a poignant and up-close and personal telling of historical events. I'm old enough to have lived through, but young enough to not to remember with clarity. There is also another recent movie, which I haven't seen, in which Woody Harrelson portrays LBJ. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, those reminders, uh, Steve. Uh, now, uh, the concluding uh, portion of uh, my conversation with Joshua Zeitz about building the Great Society inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. I want to talk a little bit about uh, race here. That's certainly all shot all, all the way through this. Um, in time, the, there's a backlash, you point out, that gathered against the Great Society. Republicans and conservative Southern Democrats learned that they could uh, get votes by focusing on racial anxieties. I, I think LBJ was very cognizant of, of this. He was a Southern Democrat. He, he knew what enacting civil rights laws would, would do to the, at least to the Southern Democrats. He did. I think you've, you've hit exactly the right point. Johnson was very conscious of what, what he was doing and understood. As he told Bill Moyers after he signed the 64 bill, um, you know, I think for my generation and yours or something to that effect. And that may have been part of the reason why he was so sanguine in his, in his pursuit of, you know, the levers that, that ultimately they used to desegregate hospitals and schools and public accommodations. He may on some level have known that, you know, whether he did or not, he had already really delivered the South to the Republican Party. I do think he underestimated the, 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 the kind of the force um, and extent of white backlash in the North. And, and his, his aides and he were caught really flat-footed in 1965 and 1966 as working-class uh, white uh, voters in the North and Midwest, particularly white ethnic voters, Catholic voters, as they, as they turned against the administration, against the Great Society, in large part because of the administration's attempt to enforce, to, to, to pass and then enforce open housing laws, those communities were, you know, highly segregated both by race and ethnicity. Um, and as, as the Johnson administration's policies began to threaten the privileged status of white people in those, in those urban and, and, you know, sort of inner ring suburban communities, their preferential access to unionized jobs that paid good wages and pensions and health care, um, their ethnically homogenous uh, neighborhoods, uh, and by extension, their racially and ethnically homogenous schools. As, as he began to threaten that um, and, and upend that longstanding kind of status quo, the white backlash built very quickly. And, and from what I can tell in my research, I don't think the administration anticipated that quite as, as astutely as they anticipated what would happen in the South. I want to bring this forward to today. You have an interesting series of articles in Political Magazine um, uh, under the title, How Trump Changed History. One of those has the title, Does the White Working Class Really Vote Against Its Own Interests? The Great Society 
a lot of these programs uh, benefited, you know, in greater numbers of whites than they did blacks. Um, but uh, at least in the South, the Republicans uh, were able to get votes by railing against uh, some of these programs by, you know, by essentially playing the race card. That's right. We did a fun, I'll do a little plug for the magazine here, because we did a really terrific um, series um, that looked at kind of three historiographical questions that historians, that's basically the, the history of the history, looks at three questions historians have been asking about American history for years, in some cases for over a century, and how the Trump administration has, in many respects, both reintroduced those questions and upended a lot of the conventional wisdom. And one of the questions we looked at was the, the sort of traditional question about whether working-class whites vote against their own self-interest. Certainly that's been one of the tropes of the Trump coverage. And that's not a new question. W.E.B. Du Bois, the famous black sociologist and historian, asked the very same question you know, about 70 years ago, 75 years ago, more than that. Um, and he posited that in many respects, he was looking particularly at the post-Reconstruction South, and he was looking at the failure of working-class whites and working-class blacks to, to form uh, a viable political coalition. Instead, working class whites, you know, allied themselves, aligned themselves with wealthier whites. They identified themselves as white in order to, you know, what they got paid. It was what he called the psychological wages of whiteness, which was Jim Crow. But in turn, you know, they ceded most of their political and economic power to wealthier whites, and in that respect, cut themselves a really bad deal. So, we're just trying to take a look at that theory from the 19th century through the current day to understand whether this criticism of Trump voters is in fact um, is in fact fair. And I think where I landed was that in some respects it is. It's very clear that um, what white working class voters in declining Midwestern towns or coal areas um, expected from the Trump administration was by no means, you know, cuts to Medicaid and Medicare uh, and tax reform that, you know, overwhelmingly benefited people in the top 0.1% bracket. So in that respect, they did vote against their own self-interest, but they do accrue certain benefits, um, benefits some of us may not approve of, but real benefits um, from for, for backing a white nationalist candidate. Uh, and, and some of the Trump administration's anti-immigration measures, um, some of his um, dismantling of civil rights laws, delivers more than a psychological wage to, to working-class white voters. It gives them something tangible. Um, and so, you know, where we landed on this question, or where I landed in the article, was that, you know, his, history has shown that it's usually neither yes or no. It's, it's a really, there's a lot of gray area there, and that's the case today as well. I want to treat one of the other articles, very interesting, very timely. The, the headline here from Political Magazine, Joshua Zeitz, uh, historians have long thought populism was a good thing. Are they wrong? You, look, you looked at the history of populism, of course, uh, President Trump is seen as a as a populist. Yeah, there's a one of the most famous American historians in, of all time was a guy named Richard Hofstadter. He was at Columbia University, um, one of the most innovative and creative historians ever, um, and he remains one of the most hotly contested ones. Even though he died many years ago, over 40 years ago, he wrote a book on the populist of the 1890s, and he it was called Age of Reform, uh, and, it, and it basically portrayed them as being cranks. These were sort of people who had, who had you know, small farmers who couldn't essentially, they couldn't keep a pace with industrialization and modernization and the rise of global markets and, and uh, labor forces. And so they lashed out against immigrants, against Jews, against people of color. Um, they embraced wide-ranging conspiracy theories. If you look at some of the populist literature that Hofstadter surfaced, it you know it it resembles eerily resembles a lot of what you might read on you know Infowars or Breitbart today. Um, it he was writing in the mid-war you know, the interwar or the post-war period when a lot of public intellectuals um, looked askance at populist movements when they thought about populism in the 1950s they thought about Nuremberg and the rallies they thought about the anti-communist hysteria in the United States so they really they really kind of feared the mob. Again, this was an era when people really trusted experts and centrists. If you fast forward about 20 years, a rising generation of historians looked at populism, particularly populism in the 1890s, and they saw it through the lens of the civil rights movement. So they saw it as a, as a, as a really valuable grassroots movement of working-class farmers and, and manual workers in cities who faced very real and tangible economic degradation and sought to improve their lot. 
and you know that next generation of historians argued that Hofstadter exaggerated the the, the hysteria and paranoia behind populism. That sort of second version ha- has has persisted and is probably what most historians are likely to to gravitate to today. So the question I asked is if you look at Trump's populist movement and there are elements of it that that definitely have to be called populist, at least with a small p, um, it very much resembles the the kind of paranoid and cranky style that Hofstadter um, that Hofstadter observed in 1890s populism. And, and I think there's no simple answer to this. But what's interesting is that the article <laughs> it got a lot of it got a lot of discussion by historians and political scientists on Twitter for some reason. I, I think Hofstadter still is a fascinating character for a lot of people who who, who follow these these questions. Um, but it does be, it does you know it does sort of introduce an important consideration about Donald Trump, which is 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 there something genuine about the anger he tapped into? It's undeniable. Voters um, have fallen behind and have not benefited from globalization, from the global movement of capital and labor, um, from immigration. Um, that's undeniable, and yet it's equally undeniable, I think, that they have delved uh, into the rabbit hole of conspiracy that's often aimed at, um, at Jews and people of color and, and immigrants, that much in the way that populists in the 1890s did. It might be unsatisfying, but both of these articles, this one and the, the Wages of Whiteness article, sort of come to the conclusion that the answer is yes and no. There's no simple answer. I want to, we're, we're uh, running out of time here. I do want to talk about some of the, the people surrounding LBJ, but maybe one more article from Politico. This is from um, summer of 2017. Uh, you wrote an article uh, looking at the history of American immigration. The subtitle here, Trump's break with tradition may be good or bad, but it's definitely different. You're, you're saying it's uh, his, his views are a bit of an outlier when you put them in historical context? Yeah, I think that's right. I'm, I'm struggling to remember what the precise article <laughs> um, uh, argued, but um, but generally speaking, uh, you know, the thrust of American immigration policy over the last, at least over the last 50 years, has been much more inclusive and tolerant. I mean, I think immigration restriction, uh, which prevailed between 1924 and 1965, when when Johnson signed into law a new immigration uh, act that the Trump administration is trying to, to rework. That was, in, in most respects, an outlier period. I mean, it was a long outlier period of about 40 years. But our borders um, were largely open um, to so-called free white people. So obviously, that meant there were wide categories of individuals who, who did not enjoy those open borders, um, the Chinese after the 1880s, the Japanese, um, but certainly for European Americans um, and even for South Americans. The idea that we would have, um, you know, like uh, aggressive border control is, is a very new innovation. Now, I don't think anyone would argue uh, that that you know immigration policy today can reflect the same norms of immigration policy in the 1840s or 50s. But the country has always proven itself able to absorb large numbers of immigrants, many of whom seems racially suspect at the time. In the 1850s, it was by no means, or even in the 1880s, by no means clear to many Anglo-Americans that the Irish qualified as whites, which would have then qualified them for citizenship, in the same way that many old-stock Americans, including third-generation Irish, were inclined to, you know, to view Italian, Greek, and Jewish immigrants in the early 1900s as also being racially suspect. So we've, we've had this argument before, and usually, not always, usually the restrictionists lose. Well, I want to uh, return to building the Great Society inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. We're talking with the author Joshua Zeitz. Uh, fascinating cast of characters around uh, Lyndon Johnson. I want to start with Bill Moyers in the public radio, public media world. We, you know, he came to be known as a beloved interviewer. Um, he was, I guess, behind the scenes. He was uh, had some sharp elbows. This is something I learned. That's right. We, yeah, we remember. We, we, most of us today you know Bill Moyers as the sort of you know, elder statesman of PBS. At the time, most people knew him as a 29-year-old ordained Baptist minister, a very kind of wholesome character. One one news reporter called him, you know, much more like Clark Clark, Clark Kent than Superman. He was sort of diminutive and bespectacled and thoughtful. Um, he he had been an ordained, he was an ordained minister, but he, he worked on Johnson's Senate staff in his 1960 presidential campaign. He then worked at the Peace Corps during the Kennedy administration. He became Johnson's, you know, right hand. He was his de facto chief of staff after 1964 and his press secretary. Uh, 
and and the press portrayed him as being the kind of what they would call the sort of good angel on on Johnson's shoulder. Um, and he was, in many respects, one of the driving liberal forces in the in the White House. But he was also, you know, you don't get one of those jobs without being pretty tough and hard nosed. And so he was very good. I think uh, Jack Valenti called him a, you know, a, a master at the pra- you know master practitioner of power. I mean, he was very good at throwing a sharp elbow. Understood how to build a bureaucratic empire, and also understood um, how to how to, to to maneuver his you know his rivals out of uh, out of power and favor. So. He, uh, he I, I, I admire him a great deal, but he certainly, I think, in this book, comes off as a little, a little more Machiavellian than maybe most people would be inclined to see him, at least in that period of the time. And he was, um, I mean, you know, he's been denounced by some for his part in uh, bugging uh, Martin Luther King's private uh, life and, uh, you know, uh, surveillance of civil rights groups at the 1964 Democratic Convention. Uh, so there's a kind of a, yeah, a naked power, I guess. Johnson talked about that as well. You you write about this. Johnson said, well, I, I do know one thing. I know how to use power. That's right. He, he, he did say that. Um, and the people around him knew how to use power, too. If you look at a guy like Joe Califano, uh, who is, I think, the one of the last surviving senior staff members in the Johnson administration, he would later go on to be a cabinet secretary under President Carter. Califano was a, a young aide to Robert McNamara, who was brought into the White House to run domestic policy. And he built uh, a bureaucratic empire in the basement of the West Wing. He, you know, uh, one of his detractors on staff later said that Califano, you know, would basically steal everybody's young aides and secretaries and requisition department staff members and bring them over to his staff temporarily. And he, he was an empire builder, um, which rubbed some people wrong. But he was also one of the most innovative policymakers uh, modern White House history. Um, so they were all, you know, in their own respects. Good at, at 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 good practitioners of power. There's uh, I want to talk about Abe Fortas, um, and you, you write uh, he was a Supreme Court justice, been been nominated uh, by Johnson, and uh, he, he held a role that you point out Felix Frankfurter played for FDR, which would be, I guess, unthinkable today a Supreme Court justice as a close advisor to a president. Yeah, Fortas was a very liberal attorney, um, Southern Jewish uh, uh, attorney who who had been a New Dealer. He had held a number of uh, New Deal agency jobs in the 1930s um, and, and rose to real prominence. Uh, he was part of a circle of, of Southern uh, liberals who Johnson f- would hang out with in the 1930s, first as when he was a congressional aide and later when he was a young New Deal congressman. Um, it would Hugo Black and Hugo Black's wife and Black was a senator who became a Supreme Court justice, Fortas, a number of others. And he became Johnson's closest advisor. You know, Fortas was this very complicated character who thrived in private practice representing corporate clients after the New Deal era, um, but also was a noted civil liberties attorney. He was the uh, the attorney f- uh, for Clarence Gideon uh, in Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court case that ultimately established um, the right to an attorney. Um, it was, you know, defended, uh, accused, you know, accused communists in the 1950s uh, from both, uh, you know, during congressional hearings and in front of loyalty boards. Uh, and yet he had this sort of love of power and money. And he and Johnson had a very close relationship. Johnson tried to bring him into the White House a number of times, finally appointed him to the Supreme Court. Um, and yet even while Fortas was on the court, he continued to be a close advisor. He was in the White House all the time, drafting speeches, advising even on the legality of certain legislative matters that ultimately could have landed before the court. The relationship, by modern standards, was highly inappropriate. As you point out, in the 1960s, it was it was not necessarily viewed as being inappropriate. Um, earlier Supreme Court justices, particularly Felix Frankfurter under Roosevelt, had played that same advisory role. Um, but in retrospect, it struck, struck many of Johnson's White House aides as, as being an arrangement that should never have been permitted um, to, to, to occur. Just a couple of minutes left. I I want to maybe have you underscore the effect of the of the Great Society. Love it or hate it, it has had a, a big effect in many areas of our our lives. And you uh, you know you quote some statistics. One that I'm reading here: Medicaid and Medicare today today amount to the difference between life and death for 119 million Americans, or roughly 37 percent of the country's population. Just one statistic. That's exactly right. I mean, uh, school uh, reduced and free school lunches and, and breakfasts uh, feed 20 million children and keep them in a state above food insecurity. Uh, SNAP 
uh, helps 30 million families, which you can do the multiplication yourself to figure out how many people that might be, helps 30 million families uh, um, eat every month. Uh, it's unimaginable to, to envision a world in which we don't have desegregated schools and hospitals and public accommodations. Um, and so as controversial as Johnson is as a president, and I would argue underrated, it's it's undeniable that the programs he built have lasting value and importance. Whether you're a liberal who believes that they were a half measure and that they should be replaced by something more aggressive, or a conservative who believes that they represent too much of an intrusion of state authority, the, the question I would pose and do pose at the end of the book is, well, what do you do if you eliminate them? Because they've become the, sort of the finger in the dam. And as America's economy grows less equal, um, as wealth becomes more unevenly distributed uh, and income as well, and as more families require some of these programs to get by, the question is, like, do you, do you embrace more structural reform, um, as many liberals today want to do? Um, or if you do dismantle these programs, what, what do you do after that? Uh, I don't think I've heard any conservative articulate exactly what their response to that kind of, of, of outcome would be. Uh, finally, I just wanted to draw a line between uh, building the Great Society inside Lyndon Johnson's White House and previous book, Lincoln's Boys, John Hay, John Nicolay, and the War for Lincoln's Image. I guess one lesson, if you combine those two books, is important who you choose as your aides. They're going to have a big effect. As president, you're going to have probably the biggest effect, but uh, people you choose are, are, are important. Nope, that's exactly right. That other book looked at John Hay and John Nikolai, who were Lincoln's White House aides, young men who came to from Springfield to, to Washington with him and who later achieved prominence of their own. Uh, and then this book, of course, looks at, at Johnson's aides, um, the good and the bad. And I think the takeaway here is that um, White House staff are, are key to the success or failure of a White House. Uh, and, you know, if you... You could, I think everybody should buy those two books and read them. But um, of course, I think if you want to prove it, if you want to prove it in the negative, um, uh, I think you just need to look at the current administration. No such rigor went into staffing this administration, and it's and it and it shows that it's mm. been a you know it's been a, a kind of national um, freak show that we've all tuned in for for the last 14 months. So hopefully, President Trump or someone around him. Uh, we'll, we'll think about retooling that White House in a way that, you know, whether you like him or not, you, you, you do want your president to succeed in some respect. And, and, and I think what we've seen today is, is just the, the polar opposite of, of the most successful. It's FDRs and Lyndon Johnsons or Ronald Reagans. Uh, so I guess finally, uh, just to underscore that, what I was going to ask you, what would, if you had the presidents here, um, what would you advise him? I would advise him to bring in people who take governing seriously. If he is indeed a conservative or a populist, he should find people from the think tanks, from the universities, from prior administrations, from congressional staff, people who can actually get their, their security clearance and put those people in the White House. And, and we can have a fair test to see whether the American public embraces those ideas that, you know, I'm well to the left of, of all of that, but, um, but there are certainly serious public intellectuals and policymakers who, who understand how to, to breathe life. He's actually serious about being president. He should go out, find them, and hire them. Well, we've been talking with Joshua Zeitz, author most recently of Building the Great Society Inside Lincoln's uh, inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. Um, I had that slip because the previous book's about Lincoln. The previous book, Lincoln's <laughs> Boys, John Hay, John Nikolai, and the War for Lincoln's Image. Those are both out, and you can read uh, Joshua Zeitz's columns in Political Magazine. Uh, Joshua Zeitz, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure.